be in Luke chapter 10. Last Sunday we saw the mission of the 70 disciples and the great success that they had in just being obedient to the Lord. Today we're going to see one of the more well-known parables among Christians and non-Christians alike. We're even going to see how the term Good Samaritan is used in our vernacular today even among secularists. As a matter of fact, those of you who are first responders will be familiar with this law. There's actually a Good Samaritan law so that if somebody knows CPR or some type of first responding and they come upon somebody who's been injured and they try to help, they, it's very limited if they could be sued sim, uh, civilly if they make a mistake. So uh, again, that term Good Samaritan is used very commonly. But we're going to see how Jesus uses the premise of what a good neighbor represents to shed new light on the heart of a well-educated religious elitist. And hopefully we can learn what God thinks of the whole delineation between the us and thems of the world. So we're going to begin in verse 25, 10:25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lawyer, we covered this before back in those days, was an expert in the law of Moses. This included criminal law, civil law, ceremonial law, or any type of spiritual law. It was more than just the Ten Commandments, the law. It actually, the Ten Commandments was a microcosm of the law in general. But we spoke of these people before. They were the religious class. Uh, Israel, the children of Israel, went from a theocracy where God ruled them directly. And then it went to a monarchy because the people complained. All the other nations have a king. Why can't we have a king? So God gave them a king. And then it went to, by this point in time, yes, they were a vassal of Rome, but they also became an oligarchy, which where it was the rule of a few. So you see that a few elitists ran the government. It, they ran day-to-day operations of the people. Now, understand that this question that the lawyer poses is not for altruistic reasons. Uh, by this time, anyone associated with Jesus, or you know, at that time, knew who Jesus was. In a sense, he was the undisputed heavyweight spiritual champion of the world. He was the king of the hill, so to speak. No one could confound him. And again, it wasn't because Jesus lorded over over people. He wasn't prideful about it. But it was because he was God in the flesh. How can you win? How can you win an argument or try to find loopholes when you're speaking with the one who created your mind? How can you do it? It just doesn't work. So again, to, to the people who had a hard heart, He was a trophy if they could trounce him publicly. Now, I'm only speculating on the questioning, but as an expert in the law, did he think he knew the answer? It's a possibility. Or was he just looking for a debate? And we're going to run into those people. They're going to frustrate us. You know, you you think that they're asking you questions for good motives, and you start sharing your faith, and they're just argumentative. It's like they have a shield up to their heart. And there's just some people who just don't want to hear it. They just want to debate you. And those are the people that we shouldn't be wasting our time with. But this shows in the word uh, testing of Jesus. In the context, it doesn't have a good connotation. And it's a shame that the question wasn't genuine. Really, this is a question that the whole world should be asking. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Especially in light of world events now, people who don't know the Lord, you hear people say, World War III, World War III, what's going to happen? So... If you don't know the answer to that question, or you should be asking that question, and you should be seeking to find out what that answer is. 
And we will give you a chance, if you don't know the Lord, to receive him later on in the service, how to inherit eternal life. But the answer from Scripture is clear. We will all inherit eternal life, but the question is, where will we spend that eternal life? Daniel 12:2, the prophecy of the resurrection. It says all the way back in the Old Testament that some will be resurrected to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting abhorrence. It's pretty heavy stuff in that one line. You know, I have a Jewish friend who admits that he doesn't know the Old Testament very well. And he'd say, you know, you Christians, I always hear you talking about sin and hell and this and that. And I said, bro, we got it from you guys. <laughs> and I showed him the Old Testament and he stopped saying that to me after that. But it's true. All these pictures of sin and uh, resurrection and you know, future salvation all start in the Old Testament. Verse 26. So he, Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So we'll see this becomes, between the lawyer and Jesus, it becomes a parry back and forth, and the parry ends with a parable. And with the parable answers the lawyer's final question that he asks. So the lawyer tries to uh, test Jesus, but Jesus puts the onus back on the lawyer and says to him, you're the expert in the law, what do you think? What does it say in there? Very interesting, Jesus says, what is your reading of it? Unfortunately, there's too many readings of rules, regulations, God's laws in today's society because we live in the age of relativism, which basically says that everything is comparative, but there's no absolutes. Now, the folly of re relativism is this. If we all, you know, get, do away with the laws, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Let's just do away with them. You know, everything's relative. My truth is the same as your truth. Well, here's the problem. If my truth is I'm an angry person and every time somebody does something that bothers me, I punch them in the nose. Eventually, my truth is going to invade your truth if you're peace loving. So the whole thing of relativism is foolishness. There has to be a standard. And what better standard than to have God's standard? But it's very interesting that man will always manipulate laws to suit himself. I even see some of these big rifts now in these major denominations, rift after rift after rift. And they, they're arguing over the most ridiculous things. The Bible is very clear on these subjects, but people want to read differently into it. Well, maybe it doesn't really mean this. Well, maybe it's a living document. Well, maybe that, you know, we're in the 21st century, so it could mean something different by this time. No, not true. The truth is that man is a manipulator. That's mankind's nature, to manipulate. It's a little bit of a play on words, but the first three letters of manipulate is man. You know, the question of, again, it, it even goes from relig religion or spiritual matters to uh, secular matters, just basic rules that we have set up in our jurisprudence system. There's a little thing that I want to read in uh, World Magazines. It talks about just confusion in the, in the courts today. It says, with a pair of opposing attorneys apparently acting like children, U.S. District Judge Gregory Presnell decided to treat them like children. The two lawyers reportedly couldn't agree on any details in an insurance lawsuit, including even where a witness would give a sworn statement. Judge Presnell's response, a June 30th match of rock, paper, scissors. Common children's game. I mean, you know rock, paper, scissors. If you don't know, basically, if you put out a rock, the paper covers the rock. But if you put out paper, the scissors can cut your paper. If you put out a scissors, the rock can smash. It's just like, you know, shooting, you know, that kind of thing. What do they call that? Two, one, whatever, evens odds. But anyway, this judge 
uh, has to settle this matter because these two lawyers were bickering about the stupidest things, and he just got fed up with them. So the one attorney uh, humbly says, uh, I guess I'd better bone up on rock, paper, scissors rules before June 30th. I mean, that's a humorous example, but, you know, look at our court systems. There's just so many uh, different, very, you know, the law says what it says, and people keep trying to change what it means. You know, what is the meaning of is? We're taking simple words in the dictionary, and we're twisting them to fit our own liking. But Jesus always goes back to the Bible. Eternal life and all answers to all of life problems are found in the Bible. You know, sometimes somebody will ask me, maybe on the job, a a question about a problem that he's having. And he doesn't know the Lord, and I'll think of something scriptural, and I'll give him the answer. And he's like, man, you're so smart. You have so much wisdom. (laughs) I'd like to take it from myself, but I didn't write it. I'm just taking what the Bible says. All the answers to life's problems are in the scripture. Verse 27. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Out of the whole Pentateuch, or basically the first, the the five books of Moses, the lawyer actually does a pretty good job. Now, he's an expert in wrapping up our responsibility to God and our responsibility to our fellow man in just two verses of Scripture out of all those five books. The one he gets is from Deuteronomy 6.5, the first one, about our relationship to God. The second one he quotes is from Leviticus 19.18, which is our relationship to our fellow man or woman. And actually, Deuteronomy 6, if you go to uh, somebody's house you know that's Jewish, they have like the doorposts and they have these things called the mezuzah on the door, and it's kind of on an angle. And some of them actually, if you open them up, they have the, the Deuteronomy 6 scrolls in it called the Shema. But heart soul, mind, strength. This is basically covers every aspect of your life. No holding back, no skeletons in the closet. Now, we all have something in our past, all of us have something in our past that you know we could say, oh, that wasn't a good thing that I did. And not meaning skeletons in the closet in that sense, but in the sense that what part of our lives are we currently not yielding to God? You know, this is something that we should be encouraged by to heart, soul, strength, and mind. We should look at every aspect and facet of our life and want to give that to God and say, you know what, this is open to you. It's like saying to God, no, don't come further than this room because there's stuff in there I don't want you to see. It's not what we should be doing. But taking this to the extreme, truly, truly loving God would mean loving his word, which would mean you would be led to the the Messiah. The Old Testament, again, always points to the New Testament. But as we see... These guys weren't willing to do that, and they certainly not willing to love their neighbor. First John tells us all through first John and says that you can't say that you love God and hate your brother. It just doesn't work. You can't love God, but at the same time, hate your brother. Well, if you hate your brother, then how are you going to treat your neighbor? So basically the way in essence, this nullifies both loving your neighbor, which nullifies loving God. It's a domino effect. I'm just going to read two scriptures, Leviticus 19 33 through 34. In the Old Testament, it says this, And if a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. But the stranger who, who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Also, Exodus 23, 4 through 5 says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you sh- and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So even in the law, God had provisions for people maybe you just didn't get along with, you didn't speak to anymore. That usually happens in Italian families. Somebody sent me a thing about, you know you're Italian if, and one, and one of the things was, there's somebody in the family that you don't speak to. So even if it's a family member or just somebody you don't get along with, you're supposed to show common courtesy and love to that person. Verse 28. By the way, for those of you who don't know, I'm Italian, so don't get offended. (laughs) Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. It's kind of hilarious how Jesus goes from being the tested one. Now he's the tester. Do this, not just here. James 14, we spoke about it before. It says, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do good, to him it is sin, the sins of omission. It really comes from Proverbs 3.27, which basically says the same thing. So do this. Don't just hear it. Don't just study it. But it's your, your faith and your, uh, your actions that go together. And you will live. What does Jesus mean? Eternally, perfectly, peacefully, abundantly. How about all the above? But Jesus is telling this expert in the law to do it as if he never has. Kind of insulting, actually. It's almost like telling a teacher of 20 years, okay, now you need to start teaching those kids. You'd be like, what are you talking about? I've been teaching for 20 years. He's telling the expert in the law, do it. Do it. Don't just think about it or or postulate it. Do it. But the point is nobody can keep the law. The law only shows us our sin and our need for a savior. Romans 3.20 tells us that. You know, I wouldn't know to sin until I, you know, I wouldn't know to uh, not to steal until I saw God's law that says do not steal. Then I realized, well, that was wrong. I was sinning, but the law showed me how sinful I really am. So Romans 3.20, the law shows us our sin and our need for a savior. Even an expert in the law could not keep the law. Verse 29, it says, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, the lawyer is trying to kind of get off the ropes, a little boxing term. He's getting a little rope-a-doped by Jesus, and he's trying to get off the ropes. And he tries to take another shot at Jesus as if to say, well, what do you mean? You know, define your terms. Be more specific. And specificity a lot of times equals a trap. This is why politicians speak in generalities. They say, I have a plan, I have a plan, I have a plan, but they don't really tell you what their plan is. They just speak in generalities. They don't lay it out. Because the more specific you are, that specificity can be attacked and taken apart. It's a debating tactic. I remember uh, the whole debate between Kerry and Bush. You know, Bush came from the, uh, from the standpoint uh, of stay the course, and Kerry said, you know, we, we need a change. This is ridiculous. We don't want this. But the funny thing is, through the whole procedure, through the debating thing, uh, Kerry was, was smart. He was being, well, actually not too smart. He didn't win the election. But he was trying to be gen- use generalities about his big plan because he knew if he laid it out too early, there was people on the other side that would take it and break it apart and then you know, show the public this isn't going to work. So it's a debating tactic that people use. It's strategy. But maybe by getting Jesus to be more specific, he feels uh, he could take a shot at him and thereby justify himself. Because if Jesus gets too carried away on this love, love your neighbor thing, uh, he, Jesus could say, well, you're supposed to love everybody. And then the people at the time would turn on Jesus because there were certain people that it, they were ingrained in their culture that they could dislike and hate. Or, which, which probably goes with it, 
uh, Jesus was onto something with this lawyer. He couldn't keep the law. So the lawyer was kind of trying to get him off the trail. But either way, they go hand in hand. It's almost like the lawyer had a hot potato and he was trying to get rid of it. So the lawyer tries to justify himself and hone in on the whole neighbor thing. Uh, Obviously, again, it was a bone of contention, as we've spoken about in past services. There was prejudice that was allowed. You were allowed to hate the Romans. You know, you were considered patriotic if you hated the Romans. You were allowed to, to hate the Samaritans. You would be considered patriotic in a spiritual way because they weren't true Jews. You could hate those people. And their attitude was, there's no way God would want me to love those people. And that they could never conceive that God would want this for them. So it sets it up here. Verse 30, it says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, some people don't believe that this was a parable. Many people say, well, because Jesus said a certain man. He kind of spoke about this in a different way, almost as if it was a current event that everybody would kind of be familiar with on the local news, right? But there's a good possibility that this wasn't a parable because if it was only a story, it would make the Jewish people look bad and the Samaritans look like the heroes, furthering opposition to the Lord. But by virtue of the way Jesus uses the story, whether it was real or uh, you know, not, not real, uh, it still would be proper to consider it a parable because that word para in the Greek is alongside. Parable takes the familiar and links it with the unfamiliar. Jesus uses things in a physical sense that they could be understand and he would make the link to spiritual issues, grinding at the mill, marriage ceremonies, all those things Jesus could take, explain, and then kind of explain how the kingdom of heaven related to that. So uh, geographically, when traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, now if you're Jerusalem traveling traveling to Jericho, you're going eastward, okay, and you're just north of the Dead Sea. And uh, you would be going down, as it says here, because Jericho would be a far much lower in elevation than Jerusalem. And the trip would be about 15 miles, just to give you an idea. And for various reasons, including the the terrain, it would facilitate robbers hanging out, hiding. And when people would walk by, they would use them, seize them as an opportunity to, to steal their goods and beat them up. So this poor guy gets brutalized and he's left for dead and probably would eventually die if nobody helped him. So now we're introduced in the story to the active characters. Verse 31. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. What was a priest? Now some people say priest, Levi, they get a little confused, so I'll try to clear it up for you. The priest was from the lineage of Levi, from the tribe of Levi. uh, All those people had become priests. And he also specifically was from the direct line of Aaron, which was Moses' brother. These were married men. They had children. They had to, because the only way the priesthood could continue was through a bloodline. Right? They conducted the animal sacrifices at the temple, and they were God's representative. Now, there was a few ways that they could be defiled or be made unclean, so they couldn't actually perform their duties. And one of those ways was to touch a dead body. So this could have been the reason why the priest... Just, yeah, I'm not going to take the chance. What if I touch him and he's dead? Now I'm unclean and I can't go back to the temple. You know, the whole thing. So it was a reason, albeit it was a weak reason. Again, they were representing God. Now, Jesus refers to a story in 1 Samuel 21, right, about David and his men when they were very hungry. They were starving. And they went to the priest, Ahimelech, and said, do you have anything to eat? We're we're famished. Uh, So the priest 
gave them the showbread, which was only lawful for the priest to eat. He asked David if him and his men had kept themselves from you know, immorality or impurity, uh, and he gave them the bread to eat. Now, God's law said that that showbread was only for the priests. And Ahimelech could have turned his head and said, listen, you guys can't have anything here. This is only priest food. You know, go find something in the desert. But he showed David and his men mercy, and he allowed one ceremonial law, a lesser law, to be broken to save human life. So keep that in mind. Verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. So this guy does the same thing. He sees the, the guy laying there and he's not taking the chance. Uh, he's also from the lineage of Levi. Uh, they were temple servants, though. They didn't actually do the animal sacrifices. And the same thing with the dead body. If he, was, if he actually went over to the man and touched him and it turned out he was dead, he would also be ceremonial unclean and couldn't serve in the temple service. But again, God would, would understand. Now, we've spoken before of when two laws come into conflict. Uh, David and the showbread is one. A ceremonial law is broken to preserve human life. Why do we know that that was good? Because Jesus particularly says it was good when he's speaking to the religious leaders. So we know that God is okay with that. Also, in our jurisprudence system, if somebody's trying to break into your house and, you know, they're breaking into your house and you've you got kids there and, you know, you, you can't get out of the house and you call 911, does the police officer have to do 25 in a residential, stop at the stop line, you know, stop sign? When it turns green, he goes again, where are the cops? I'm getting broken into. You know, our jurisprudence system says that the police are allowed to break traffic laws if it's an emergency. So there are laws that we're supposed to follow, but in an emergency, we can break those laws. Remember, two laws come into conflict. Same thing with the laws of physics. I've said this before. How do you get an airplane off the ground? You know, what happens is you use, well... God uses it, but we've figured it out. Bernoulli's principle and Newton's third law of motion. When, when the air acts upon that wing, it generates a lift. The wings are lifted, which lifts the plane. And as long as that plane is going a certain speed, it's that thousands of ton plane, all that hunk of metal is in the air and it just goes, right? There's gravity, but these two laws supersede gravity in the laws of physics. And it's the same with God's laws. God said in Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Jesus also quotes this to the religious leaders. They weren't getting the whole mercy thing. Uh, these men of God sacrificed because that's what they were supposed to do, but they didn't show mercy. See, here's the problem. They misrepresented God as cold, uncaring, and bloodthirsty. All he wants is the blood of the animals. He's cold, he's not approachable, and he's uncaring. And that's, that's the problem. We spoke about Moses when he uh, hit the rock twice, when he was supposed to strike it the first time and then speak to it the second time. He misrepresented God. So because of that, Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. You know, God loves us. He's caring. He's forgiving. And if any of his servants misrepresent him, he has a real problem with that. And you see that happen today. Priest, Levite, lawyer, Pharisee. Well, today we have priests, pastors, rabbis, whatever. But the point is, what are these people supposed to represent? They're supposed to be people that you can come to for comfort and for questions. It's supposed to be people that can give you a better understanding of God, representation of God. And again, that's why we have James 3.1. It says, let us not all become teachers because don't you know we will receive a stricter judgment. You've heard all too many times the horror stories, or I've heard them. You go to a religious leader and they say, do as I say, not as I do. Or don't question the church. 
These are in direct violation of Acts 17.11. When Paul went through the area, Paul wrote half the New Testament, great apostle. And he was questioned as he went through Berea because they said, you know, Paul, it sounds good, but let me see that Old Testament. Let me see if what you're saying really is true. Acts 17.11 says you question. You question leadership. Respectfully, please, but you can question leadership. <laughs> you know, I don't know your, the answers to your spiritual questions, and, and they don't take time to find out the answers. They're just not concerned. Or weddings, funerals, baptisms. Yeah, we'll do it. How much have you donated to the church lately? I mean, that's, that's insulting. Like, what, is God poor? Did God ever, you know, did God ever make people pay for his love and affection? That's, you know, that's called actually prostitution. And that's not the way God op operates. It's, that's horrible. We don't charge for any of that stuff because we believe what God has given us freely, we give freely. And as a matter of fact, I don't know what anybody donates here. And I don't want to know. It's not my business. That's between you and the Lord. Because honestly, people become prejudiced. Whether they like it or not, it's human nature. They will become prejudiced. The more you do for me, the more I like you. And that's not how we operate. Verse, verse 33, it says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Now, the irony or the tragedy, depending on how you look at it, was that the Samaritans we spoke about two Sundays ago were despised, hated, considered irreligious. And this guy shows more compassion and love than two upstanding pillars of the community, representatives of God. And that theme keeps coming up, representatives of God. I know it sounds like a broken record, but it's very important. Some people say, well, that's a pastor's job. I don't really represent God. I just come here on Sundays. No. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself somebody who believes that Jesus died for your sins and you read that Bible and you pray, you're a representative of God. We're all representatives of God in one way or another. And we have to be concerned on how we represent God, period. But the lesson here is that, you know, people in spiritual authority, it's because of sinful nature of people. Maybe it's because of uh, uh, maybe being cynical, but... I wouldn't believe, I would believe anything. If something came in on the news about somebody that people say, wow, what a, wait a minute, that can't be. People are sinful. People fall. You know, it's just the way it is. But the truth is, the more men of God fall, the more we should trust God, not focus on men. The more we see men fall into sin, representatives of God, the more we have to realize it's not about men. It's not about who speaks well or who's funny or who's, you know, gives me a lot of information on Sunday. It's about God. We're just representatives. The, the saddest thing that I see is when somebody falls into sin, uh, you know, maybe a pastor or, or, or a leader, and people are crushed. They're completely crushed. That shows me that, look, it's an emotional thing in the beginning, but if that's going to kill your faith, you have a weak faith to begin with. You're showing me somebody who's got a very weak faith. You know, don't focus on man. If, if I could tell you anything, take, take away from here today. Verse 34, it says, so he has compassion on him, and 34 it says, and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Oil and wine. Oil and wine, along with grain, were the main staples of that indigenous diet. Those three things were the main staples of that diet. Wine had alcohol as an antiseptic, so he took whatever wine he had and he poured it on his wounds, to hopefully kill some of the bacteria. Oil, remember this guy was beat up bad and they took his clothes. And that's a hot area. And who knows how long he was laying out there in the sun. 
So he probably took the oil to help condition his skin, at least. I mean, what a, what a show of mercy to put on his skin so it would, it would be rehydrated again. Um, the Good Samaritan did the best he could with what he had. Remember, there was no Jericho General Hospital in the area. So, so whatever he had, he, he had to use, right? The Good Samaritan was totally sidetracked from his original plans. Who knows what he, where he was going? The story doesn't tell us. But furthermore... The Samaritan, think about this, would have been way out of his comfort zone because he's in an area now, he's in opposition territory. He's in the heart of opposition territory. These people, the closer you get to Jerusalem, these people had such nationalism, they despised the Samaritans. So this guy's going out of his comfort zone to show love and mercy and do God's will. Now, there's a good lesson for us because I've got to tell you, whenever I don't care what church it is, the prison ministry is the most underrepresented. Because people would have to go out of their comfort zone to get into the prison. And I'm not giving anybody a hard time because the first time I went into the prison, I was like, oh, I don't want to go into the prison. Why would I want to be in a prison? <laughs> a cop in a prison, that's not a good thing. <laughs> you could just imagine what I was thinking. But <laughs> So I go in, and i got to tell you, when I left a few hours later, I had the best time of my life. You know, these guys were uh, wanting to hear the word of God, were thrilled that somebody would actually come in and, and teach them the Bible, you know, they were praying and, and, you know, hugging, and it just was like, man, I never would have expected I would have had such a good time. But people are afraid to leave their comfort zones to bless other people. You know, they, it's like they don't trust God. You know, trust God. If it's right, if God calls you to do it, do it. You might be pleasantly surprised. Verse 35, on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So he takes out this money, right? And uh, you know, he, he uses the oil and wine. He spends his time. Time's a big thing. There was, I'm sure, plenty of opportunity costs of business he could be doing somewhere else. Uh, he spent two days' wages. How much would that be today to us? You know, Median, it could be anywhere. Two days' wages for us could be anywhere from $400 to $1,000 in our, our money. That's, that's big. That's, that's a big uh, expenditure. But he also had an... It didn't end there. He, he puts an open tab, put it on my account, whatever else... Who knows how long it took this guy to heal up. He puts an open ca- uh, tab with the innkeeper and says, listen, here's money up front. Whatever else this guy needs, put it on my account. When I come back, I'll, I'll pay the tab. It's pretty amazing. So the question is... Thinking about that in, in our, our terms, in our busy life, how many of us would do that for a stranger? We think that if we see somebody that we don't know and they're a little down on their luck, we give them a $10 bill. We think that we're really generous. Oh, keep it. The Lord put it on my heart to give you that. You know, I'm a Christian. That's God's money. Here it is, babe. You know, And it's like, wow, a 10 spot. Maybe I could put a down payment on a house with this. But, you know, it's a lesson not only in being neighborly, but in generosity. This is a big lesson here in generosity. And I don't think it's exaggerated for any reason. I think, you know, Jesus is careful with his words. He's the, he has the mind of God. He put this stuff in his story here for us to get something out of this. I don't, I don't think it's an exaggerated story. Verse 36. So which one of these three do you think was neighbor to him to fell, who fell among the thieves? So the guy falls down, gets beat up. He's, he's in a bad way. Three people come by, and Jesus says, so out of the story, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which one do you think was a neighbor to this guy? Now, thinking about the guy being a local to the area, you would 
normally assume probably the priest or the Levite. But it kind of reminds me of, I've quoted Sesame Street before. I don't know if I have to do a copyright thing, but I'm just going to say it. Remember that game? Uh, how many remember that game where it said, which one of these things doesn't belong? Come on. A lot of you. Well, for those of you who don't, it was, you'd watch, I did believe it was Sesame Street. There was the t- your TV would be into four parts, and they would have four people or four objects, and they would say, which one of these things doesn't belong? It was a children's game to understand what's out of place. So you picture the priest, the Levite, you know, <laughs> the local man, and the Samaritan. Now, normally we would say, oh, Samaritan, get him out of there. He doesn't belong. But in this instance, Jesus is showing us that the Samaritan is the one who's his neighbor. And the other guys that you would normally think, they all go together. The guy, the guy who fell among thieves was probably a local man. So the priest, the Levite, and the, and the guy who, the victim, all should have been together, and the, and the Samaritan should have been booted. But in this case, the Samaritan was the one who was the neighbor. He was the good guy. So the big question is, who is my neighbor? If we ask ourselves that, sometimes we're really saying, who am I required to love? And who am I free from loving? Because whatever God wants me to do, I will fill my obligation and no more. Right? When we ask, who is my neighbor? The irony in our society is that we become so impersonal that some of our literal neighbors, we don't even know. We could be there for years because we're so busy, right? And it was such a contrast in that society. In that society... And even in some cultures still in the Middle East, they're very neighborly. You know, villages are very tight. They lift each other up. But the lesson is, who is off limits in our minds? And, you know, let's think about that. What is God trying to show us? Is it that pierced, tattooed teen at Burger King that's serving your kids his Happy Meal? Don't look at, don't look, don't look. Just this thing sticking out of his eyebrows, you know. Don't look. It's the devil, you know what I'm saying? Or is it the dreaded Arabs at the gas pumps? We're paying three plus dollars. Oh, those Arabs, they're the cause of the, all the world's ills. What is it? You know, in God's mind, nobody is off limits. Nobody is off limits. And we should take the, the leading from God. Anybody could be our neighbor. If there's a need, that person automatically becomes our neighbor. The Christian community is not our exclusive neighbors. Some Christians are so immersed in Christian communal living that they shut out the outside world. Well, where does salt and light fit into that equation? It doesn't. I've got to tell you, sometimes I really like being a cop because I meet people that probably would never step foot in a church. You know, they, they have an impression of what we're like, and some of those impressions are real. You know, perception is reality. So it's kind of cool to go out into the world and meet people and tell them about the Lord. But we need to break down our barriers to the outside world. We need to do a heart check and see who we are not allowing to be our neighbors. Remember, there is a connection between loving God and loving our fellow man, and the two cannot be divorced from each other. Let's pray. Well, where does salt and light fit into that equation?